This is Songwriter, a podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. This week, we have a song from a brilliant young writer, musician, and actor, Aya Aziz. But first, we'll hear the story that inspired the song by author Roxanne Gay. Roxanne is a best-selling author, a columnist for the New York Times, a teacher, and a riotously fierce and funny presence on Twitter. Please note, this episode contains sex and violence, so listeners with sensitivities should be careful. Roxanne's story is Baby Arm from the collection Difficult Women. She reads it at a live performance at the Strand Bookstore in New York City. Ladies and gentlemen, Roxanne Gay. (laughs) Every time I I use a mic stand, I'm just like, it's so phallic, it's in my face. Stop. Um... It's a real pleasure to be here at the Strand. <laughs> it's my first time reading here, actually. So I'm really excited, and it's a pretty room with lights. Yay! And so the story I'm going to read this afternoon is called Baby Arm, and it's from Difficult Women, which is out now in paperback. Yay. And so Baby Arm is a story I wrote several years ago, um, and I wrote it for my best friend who is my sidekick in all things. And so um, so one day she mailed me um, a baby arm, a mannequin, just an arm. And I was just like, wow, how did you know this is what I've always wanted? And I still have it. It's like one of my most prized possessions. And every time someone comes over, they try to touch it. And I'm like, uh-uh, that's baby arm. I'm dating a guy who works as a merchandiser for a large department store, and one of his duties is designing window displays. He tells me this on our third date. We have already slept together twice. I'm not a hard sell. When he tells me about his job, we're at a sleazy bar drinking beer from the tap in frosted mugs. I tap my foot against his. I say, I'm ready to go back to your place whenever you are. I'm anxious about all the getting to know you conversations that we're having. I've never enjoyed sitting through previews at movies. It always seemed like such a waste of time. He tells me he dresses windows and has access to a storeroom full of mannequins and mannequin parts. I say, like in the movie Mannequin? And he doesn't get the reference. Very disappointing. (laughs) I explain about Andrew McCarthy and Meshach Taylor and Kim Cattrall frolicking in the middle of the night in a department store thanks to the magic of an ancient Egyptian necklace all set to a synthesized 80s soundtrack. On our way to his place, we stop at a red box and rent rent the movie, and he loves it, and for the first time, I think this guy is not a complete tool. (laughs) A couple of months later, he comes over to my apartment in the middle of the night because we've long abandoned the pretense of any interest in anything but dirty sex, and he's holding a fiberglass baby arm painted the color of flesh. He hands it to me and says, I thought you might like this. And I take the baby arm and tell him if he's not careful, I will fall in love. And he says he would be fine with that. We take a bottle of wine and the baby arm to my bedroom and I caress it while we kill the cheap red. My mouth tastes fruity yet sour, cheap. I don't mind. I'm quickly becoming enamored by the scraggly beard unevenly covering my lover's face and his thin lips and the sensation of him rubbing my back in lazy circles because he never knows how to make a move, still doesn't understand that he only needs to push me on my back and tell me to spread my legs. 
I set the baby arm on my nightstand and provide him with a little seduction instruction. He follows direction well, so I lie beneath him and imagine a little more hair on his chest, a little more muscle wrapped around his bones. He grins, and I think about my best friend, Tate. Tate and I work together as publicists for a record label and often lament how we are sacrificing our souls. We are not motivated to change our professional circumstances. We have to look pretty and make people believe in false idols, and we have to hold our liquor. For that, we are handsomely rewarded. We write off our gym memberships and depilatory regimens. Our offices are right next to each other, but we spend most of our time on the phone talking to each other about our all-girl fight club, No Boys Allowed. Boys don't really know how to hurt girls. Hey, he says, are you with me? I open my eyes and look up. A thin line of sweat beads along his hairline. I smile. I tell him to hate me more. He does, and a pleasant soreness begins spreading from between my thighs, and my head is slamming against the headboard. Now I'm with him. Later, I'm still awake because I'm not very good at sleeping, and I'm achy, so I'm feeling tender toward him. Instead of nudging him awake, telling him to go home, I watch him sleep. I hold the baby arm and marvel at how small and perfect it is, how each finger is exactly where it's supposed to be, slightly curled toward the wrist. I use the baby arm to trace my sort of boyfriend's arm. His name is Gus. Now that I'm sure of his name, I no longer call him, hey you, or refer to him as the dude I'm nailing when talking to my friends. I hold the baby arm to my chest and eventually I fall asleep. I really underestimated Gus. The next morning at the office, I call Tate and tell her how well Gus takes direction. She says, Next time you fuck him, call me so I can listen to the two of you, and when you come, say my name. I tell her I will. That's what friends are for. <laughs> we talk about baby arm, how it almost articulates. I tell her how I lovingly cleaned it with a baby wipe and how I kissed each tiny fingertip. She says, I want a boy who will bring me a baby arm. She asks me how I got so lucky, and I am at a loss until I consider the sequence of events bringing Gus into my life. I explain I got so lucky because of a lifelong dedication to slutty and inappropriate behavior and my ability to drink tequila straight. She murmurs approvingly. I want to tell her it's fate, but she's hardcore and would probably laugh. I tell her I will ask Gus if he has any straight friends in merchandising. She says, this calls for a celebration. We're having fight club tonight and recites an address I don't recognize. Then she asks, then I ask, how are we going to make a 13-year-old pop singer popular? Briefly steering the conversation toward work. Tate is silent for a few moments. Finally, she says, old white ladies who perm their hair. We are very good at our jobs. When it's time for Fight Club, I show up at a sketchy strip mall, the kind that includes a depressing house of worship filled with posters of black Jesus and folding chairs a chicken shack with two tables and a dirty counter promising a sousson of salmonella, a retail emporium for strippers and their friends, and an urgent care clinic. This strip mall is the most perfect place in the world. Tate told me, before I left work, to go into the stripper emporium and ask to be escorted to the basement, making note of a pair of clear lucite heels that would look spectacular on me. Tate is waiting in the basement, her dirty blonde hair slicked back in a fierce ponytail. She's wearing jeans and a wife beater and a leather jacket, and so am I. 
So are all of the girls we invited, 10 of us who are pretty and fucked up, girls who keep their ugly beneath the skin where it belongs, even though sometimes it's hard to keep it all in. We all look hot. I say, this room is a wet dream, and everyone laughs nervously, and Tate says, let's rock this shit. She runs up to a thin redhead, a model who is moderately recognizable and lurking near the edge of the room. Tate punches the model in the gut, and I feel tingly all over, and then someone's knuckles connect with my face, and I can taste blood in the back of my throat. I get so angry, I start swinging. I don't care what I hurt. We don't waste any time making rules or pontificating about the meaning of our fight club. We don't do any of that girl fighting shit. There's no hair pulling or scratching or screeching helplessly. We're all about closed fists and open-handed face slaps and knees to stomachs. We hold throats between our fingers until desperate hands clawed our wrists. We wrestle on the sticky floor and call each other terrible names until the room is sweet with sweat and heavy bruising. We fight until our arms are so heavy and sore we can't lift them, and one girl who is pinned by a large, scary-looking tomboy suddenly shouts, Get off me, fat ass! Her words are so sharp we hear them through the fists falling against flesh and the grunts and the heaving. We all gasp, because the tomboy is big-boned, but she's not fat. Tate stops slamming the head of a pixie girl with pink hair against the floor and stares at me across the room. She mouths, I love you, and I smile even though it hurts, and another set of knuckles connects with my face, ruining the moment. Bitches ruin everything. My jaw feels loose and some hideous bruises are forming along my cheekbones. I'm pretty sure a couple of ribs are broken. I crawl toward a nearby wall and sit with my knees pulled to my chest. Tate slowly lowers herself next to me. She holds my hand in hers, kisses each of my fingertips, the undersides of my wrists. She says, see, no one can hurt like a girl. We're all slumped in pretty piles of damage. We try to pull ourselves together while contemplating cosmetic strategies for works the next day. I buy the Lucite heels and other, necess and other necessities on the way out, and Tate and I flirt with danger by eating at the chicken shack. We tear greasy fried meat from warm bone with our teeth. Our hands are scraped but shiny and slick. We smile at each other. This is the most I will ever love another person. When Gus comes over a few nights later, he's holding a chubby baby thigh. He has shaved his beard. I tell him if he keeps this up, I might marry him. He says, I can live with that. Gus hands me the baby thigh dimpled around the knee and kisses my cheek. I turn and crush my lips against his even though there isn't an inch of my body that doesn't hurt. We don't bother with wine. We're all teeth and tongue. We tear each other's clothes off, and in my room, he throws me onto the bed. I'm impressed. He's such a quick study. Gus traces the bruises along my rib cage and on my face, even presses them until I wince. I say, harder. He obeys. I hold up my hand, say, hold that thought, and dial Tate. I hand him the phone. I say, she wants to talk to you. He smiles the sleaziest smile and says, two chicks, that's hot. And I tell him not to talk too much so we can still fall in love and get married, and he can continue to woo me with fiberglass baby parts. Gus puts Tate on speakerphone, and she tells him all the terrible things she wants him to do to me. I marvel at her creativity and how much she loves me. Gus does as he's told. He's a good boy. He fucks me like a bad, bad man. And when I come, his fingerprints around my throat are still throbbing. 
I am barely breathing. I can't find the air. I call out Tate's name until it feels like my throat muscles will unravel. I can taste her in my mouth. The next time I talk to Tate, I will tell her that she is actually the man of my dreams. While Gus sleeps, I hold the baby arm and the baby thigh so hard and smooth and adorable. I think about how the longer I date Gus, the more baby parts he'll bring me and maybe eventually we'll have a little family of fiberglass child parts that will never become anything more than what they already are. Thank you. That was awesome. We're about to hear a song written in response uh, to your story. Mm -hmm. um, is there, like, do you have any expectation? Like, is there anything that you... <laughs> <laughs> I sure don't. I've never, <laughs> I've never done anything like this. So I'm just expecting loveliness. However it comes out, I think it's going to be awesome. I think you're right. Um... <laughs> I generally am. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's a, so among all of the other wonderful things that Roxanne does, I, I'm a big fan of her Twitter. I don't know <laughs> how many of you all follow her. There's a, there's a phrase she used which has stuck with me for, for weeks, which is there was some uh, dude who was giving her crap about a McSweeney's piece, I think, and, and oh, yeah. the phrase she used was, you are the arbiter of fuck all. <laughs> It stuck with me. Uh, it's a great phrase. So anyway, uh, we're going to bring up uh, next a uh, young woman called Aya Aziz. Aya came to us from uh, Girl Be Heard, an organization that develops, amplifies, and celebrates young women's voices through socially conscious theater and music. Um, she is now a, a senior at Hunter and is herself a teaching artist at Girl Be Heard. Ladies and gentlemen, Aya Aziz. So tell me about your first reaction to the story. Uh, maybe this is divulging too much information, but actually, around reading this story, I got into a kind of um, ag aggressive partnership, if that makes sense. And for the first time in my life, in the last like two weeks, uh, I experienced that. Um, and there was kind of a thrill in, in it. It's why I didn't immediately walk away. And I was interested in exploring why uh, I was so willing to be kind of roughed up in that way. And I think it was because of my frustrations with performing pretty. The expectations of femininity were kind of broken and, and bruised in that moment. And it was satisfying, even though it was scary. And eventually, you know, um, when it became something that you know, was was larger than I could control. Then I was like, this is kind of abusive. Now I, I now I have to leave. Um, but the magic of destroying something that is um, that is like a shell that we kind of live in <laughs> uh, was was exciting, and I took that kind of from from this piece. Also, um, the first song I wrote for for it that I ultimately didn't didn't bring um, was a response to she's the man of my dreams. I love that because that's often my connection, I think, to my <laughs> my closest 
friends, um, and I find love in my uh, relations and friendships, and also, you know, romance with women. Um, and then at, um, I'm divulging a lot of personal information in this <laughs> response. It, it was a beautiful story, <laughs> and it hit a lot of points in my life. <laughs> I'm here for all of the personal disclosure. <laughs> It's like, I'm just like, tell us more. What do you find interesting about your friendships with women? Because I agree. <laughs> we had some technical problems recording Aya's performance, but she kindly offered to record a studio version of the song. Written in response to Roxanne Gay's short story, Baby Arm, here's Aya Aziz performing Push. Withholding disbelief is not how I'll 
That was Aya Aziz with her song, Push, written in response to a story called Baby Arm. Baby Arm is excerpted from Difficult Women by Roxane Gay, copyright 2017 by Roxane Gay. Baby Arm originally appeared in a slightly different form in Rick Magazine, formerly Mississippi Review Online, recorded with the permission of the publisher Grove Press, an imprint of Grove Atlantic Inc., all rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Songwriter. If you enjoyed it, please consider rating, subscribing, etc. on your podcast app of choice. The next episode will feature a reading from Rick Moody's Hotels of North America and a song written in response by Senya Rubinos.